Hi, and welcome back to episode three of You, Me, and the UPC. You have once again got me, Naomi, and Charlie uh, talking all things UPC, but today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Dr. Greg Bacon. Greg, hi. Thanks for joining us. Hello, and welcome uh, to all our listeners, and thank you for inviting me to join your podcast. Fantastic. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself for those who don't know everything about you already? Of course. Uh, So I'm a partner in the patent litigation group here at Bristow's and I have been representing clients in patent disputes in the UK for over 15 years, mostly in the life sciences sector. Um, But also in addition to UK work, I have been coordinating um, many cases um, across multiple jurisdictions in multinational litigation. And that often involves a very heavy European angle. So uh, I um, hardly surprisingly have a real interest in the UPC through its lengthy uh, station period and finally its birth. And one final point I suppose to tell our listeners is that I am now dual qualified uh, in Belgium and therefore able to represent clients um, before all of the divisions of the UPC um, through our Brussels or uh, soon to be opened Dublin office. Today's podcast is going to focus on jurisdiction. Um, We'll start with some of the uh, simpler points and then get on to some of the more difficult topics like long arm jurisdiction uh, towards the end of the podcast. Um, To start start with a fairly uh, straightforward question, what what cases can be brought in the UPC? Uh, So this is all set out in Article 32 of the UPC Agreement. Um, So the national courts in uh, participating states of the UPC have transferred some of their competencies to this new court. Um, So all unitary patents that are granted by the EPO will fall within the new system. And in time, uh, all classic bundles of European patents will as well. After this initial transitional regime where uh, classic European patents can be litigated in both national courts and the UPC, If the patent is opted out, then it cannot be litigated within the UPC unless that opt-out is withdrawn. Um, So the typical actions that are associated with patents are set out in Article 33 of the UPC agreement. So that includes claims for infringement, revocation, declarations of non-infringement, preliminary injunctions uh, and other preliminary measures like seizures uh, and inspection orders. Maybe, Naomi, if, if you kind of cover what, what isn't included in the EPC. My other true love, brand, is not covered in that list. Uh, it also doesn't cover claims for breach of patent licenses, any entitlement disputes and associated things that might be kind of thought to go together. So any trade secrets issues or trademark cases. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of doubtful whether the court could grant any kind of declarations that we've seen uh, like the type we've seen in the UK, which aren't set out in Article 32, so that the FRAND uh, licensing uh, issues that we've looked at here with the, the FRAND rate and the license terms or any kind of arrow-type declarations that the UK court could grant. And, Greg, maybe you could uh, cover for us what, what type of action a patentee has to bring. Does it, If it's looking at infringement, does it have to cover all territories? Yeah, this is an important point, not so much for unitary rights, because by their very nature, um, the statutes are set up um, and and allow the power to grant these unitary rights, treat them as very much as a unitary right and um, so a claim um, for infringement or a claim for revocation. 
uh, of a unitary right, first, can only be brought in the UPC, and second, must extend to the entirety of um, the, the, the patent. Um, although, of course, it might only be being infringed in one court or in, 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 a, in a number of countries. So it's, it's not a difficult question in relation to unitary patents. On the other hand, European patents, as we've always known them, which are bundles of national patents on grant, will continue to remain bundles of national patents. And initially, the thinking had been that, again, a patentee would have to bring a claim for infringement of um, the various national European patents in all of the countries in which they could demonstrate infringement. And likewise, an, um, a party seeking to revoke uh, a European patent would have to uh, seek to revoke the European patent in all the countries in which it was in force in the UPC. However, the thinking now is that either party may choose to carve out certain um, countries, certain uh, national designations, uh, usually we would think um, to try and avoid being in a situation where they would be blocked from accessing the UPC because there was a pre-existing national litigation in one or more countries. So it does seem that you can um, chop down, as it were, the relief you're seeking down to the, the national, the national um, of, the, of the European patent in question. But we would expect that only where there was a kind of a good reason to do so, um, because the point of the UPC is it, it is meant to be a one-stop shop for European patent litigation in the 17 countries that are, that are participating, or, or it, there may be more than 17 in the future. So I guess there's a, another question, which is exactly how the jurisdiction of the different divisions is going to work in practice. And I think that's one of the areas in which the court isn't, in fact, completely unified um, you can't necessarily bring any action in any division because only certain divisions might have jurisdiction in a given case, uh, despite the UPC being an international court. Um, so infringement claims can only be brought in a division that's hosted uh, by the contracting member state in which the actual or, or threatened act of infringement takes place. So uh, if the act of infringement takes place in Italy, the claim would be in Milan. There's also another alternative set out uh, in the legislation. So the claim could also be brought in a division hosted by a contracting member state in which the defendant is domiciled. Uh, and where there is more than one defendant, it would be enough that one of those defendants is domiciled in that particular country. So a claim against a Finnish defendant could be brought in Helsinki, a Portuguese defendant in Lisbon and, and, and so on. Um, a single action can only be brought against multiple defendants where the defendants have a commercial relationship, though, and where the action relates to the same alleged infringement. But if uh, there are different uh, companies in different groups selling different products, but all kind of relating to the same patent, that would have to be separated out uh, and, and split across the various uh, different um, actions in the various different courts, as, as Charlie said. But it's worth saying that if there's no local or regional division available because the contracting member state elected not to provide one, you can bring an infringement claim in the central division. Currently, that's only going to cover Malta and Luxembourg. And the, the language of the UPC agreement is slightly unclear on this, but I think it, the general understanding is taken that that's only available if there's no alternative to Malta or Luxembourg available. So not if there's also infringement in France or Germany or one of the uh, places where you could bring a case in a local or regional division. But all revocation and DNI actions 
in their in themselves have to be bought within the central division and which of the seats of the central division whether that be paris munich or in due course milan is as we discussed in the last episode split by patent subject matter so you don't really have the same kind of forum shopping availability on on the revocation side yeah, I mean, it, it does strike me as a rather patentee friendly um, court in that sense, because there is an element of forum shopping available to the patentee, but not to um, the a potential infringer. Um, and that's just one of the factors that will, that will play out in, in, in the court. Of course, all appeals will just go to this solitary court in, of appeal in Luxembourg. And, and is there any consequence? from the fact that there are these multiple divisions that a case could be brought in at, at first instance. Um, I think the answer to the first question, why are there these multiple local divisions? Ultimately, it was, it was a question of political compromise, it seems to me. The various uh, signatory states wished, obviously, to create this one-stop shop, which would take over all patent litigation uh, in Europe, but of course, they had a history, many of them, of local courts deciding patent disputes with specialist judges in many cases and specialist practitioners. Uh, and each country, I, I believe, wished to maintain that tradition and, and have um, certainly a home for their existing patent judges and practitioners. So each country, or as, as you heard, most countries other than Malta and Luxembourg, have decided to open a division so that they can play a role. Uh, yeah, in the court. Each of those divisions are, is generally going to have the, the same competence, isn't it? Um, they, they can all generally grant pan-UPC relief. So a pan-UPC PI order, for example, or a final injunction in damages uh, or, or a pan-UPC revocation decision or inspection or a seizure order. So although we have these different courts, they, they should be operating as part of this international court system. Yeah, absolutely. So, so once you can get your, as the as the patentee, you can get your foot in the door through the jurisdiction route that we just discussed. You, you can identify a, uh, a court in which, uh, in a country um, in which there is an act of infringement or the defendant is domiciled. The relief that's then available should you succeed, either in, in your uh, application for provisional or uh, preliminary measures, or, or at the end of the day, uh, is pan UPC. Uh, and that's also true for the injunction and the relief and the damages that, that flow from that. So the selection of court is one driven by the practicalities, uh, the facts on the ground, but two where there is a choice uh, will be driven perhaps by local flavours um, that the individual local divisions bring to the the party. Uh, although the judges in the build up to um, D Day, as we might call it, the day one of the of, of the UPC, were very uh, were at pains um, to state that they viewed the UPC as a harmonised uh, jurisdiction, and that they would be trying to give uh, decisions in a harmonised manner, which would. Uh, in a sense that such that each division, it, it didn't matter which division you went to, you ought to get the same decision, even though you might get, or you definitely would get different judicial panel at first instance. So one of the things that, that won't drive where you bring your case is the, the representatives, because once you're an authorised representative, uh, you can represent clients in the UPC across all of the divisions. So um, someone like Greg, for example, who uh, is is authorised um, to to represent clients now, could bring a case in any of the uh, UPC divisions for for a client, and um, 
uh, once you've got the choice of English as well across the, the various divisions, it kind of, you know, language wise, that shouldn't be such a driving factor either. Yeah, I agree. And I think long term, I think that is the view of most um, UPC enthusiasts. Uh, let's put it that way. I still think it's fair to reflect that in the early days where there isn't much um, UPC case law to fall back on, um, the courts are likely to rely on their national practice, um, even though they've said very clearly they're not going to follow national law, you know, the, the court is to apply international UPC law. Well, until that's been made, it would be entirely understandable for, for judges um, to follow what they know best. And so I think in the early days, one might pick a local division on the basis that there's an expectation that, let's say, French judges who have a history of granting saisie contrefaçon orders are more likely in the early days are more comfortable about the idea of granting an order that allows a bailiff to enter the premises of an alleged infringer as opposed to a, a, a judge from a country that has never ordered such a procedure and would find it anathema in their, to do so in their national um, court. So I guess time is running on. Perhaps it's now uh, the opportunity to address one of the the more controversial um, aspects of the UPC. So um, this is the question of whether UPC decisions can take effect outside the UPC. Well, maybe I'll pick up um, the answer to that, Um, although there is no answer, I I suppose, in the true sense, um, because we need to wait to see what will happen. The UPC agreement doesn't include a formal mechanism for um, its decisions to take effect outside the UPC countries. Uh, And that's the idea that decisions of the UPC could have direct uh, impact outside in in countries that aren't participating in the UPC is certainly one of the most contentious aspects of the whole project, not least the lack of express uh, ability to do so. It's not surprising that there is a resistance Uh, in some people's minds, the idea that the UPC could uh, determine uh, disputes uh, outside of its jurisdiction um, in a way that's different from national courts. Um, The UPC is an international agreement um, between sovereign states um, and countries that have not participated in the UPC agreement can certainly not have can certainly not be considered to have agreed to recognize um, the force of UPC decisions. One can think of many international agreements, such as the International Court of Justice or the WTO um, dispute settlement bodies, that parties who haven't yet signed up to the WTO or the International Court of uh, Justice, uh, the idea that the decisions of those courts would bind um, those countries. Um, again, uh, I think most legal scholars would find that difficult to, 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 to agree to. Um, and further, beyond that, IP rights, including patent rights and national uh, rights granted by um, granting bodies of the countries in question. So um, that that is the starting point uh, and, and reflecting on the fact that the agreement itself doesn't expressly try to provide the UPC with this any kind of extra UPC jurisdiction. Um, nevertheless, I think it's important to consider that the jurisdiction might exist, not least given the number of commentators who've suggested it, it has. Um, so I think the last few minutes of our, our podcast, we're just going to uh, talk about what extra territorial jurisdiction might exist. Um, so if we start with um, the first 
group of countries. Those are EU or EEA countries that haven't signed the agreement, um, such as Spain, uh, Poland, um, Croatia. Um, there are there are a few others. Um, so jurisdiction in that case is governed by the Brussels regulation because those countries are signatories to the Brussels regulation and the regulation was amended post uh, uh, signature of the UPC agreement to introduce some features into the Brussels regulation or, or to um, embed the UPC within the EU jurisdictional regime. That does mean that it could be said that those countries, by um, agreeing to the changes to the Brussels regulation, have in a way accepted the long-arm UPC jurisdiction in relation to their country. I mean, that is, again, a relatively extreme view, but it is at least based on a legislative instrument. Um, but that, that wouldn't apply to other countries uh, in, in Europe that don't fall into that category. Exactly. And, and that's where it becomes, um, I guess, more contentious is a country such as the UK or Turkey or Switzerland, um, which has never, in some cases, participated in the Brussels regulation or in, or in the case of the UK, are decided no longer to participate in the Brussels regulation uh, to suggest that the, um, the long arm jurisdiction of the UPC, to the extent it exists, uh, can be found through the Brussels regulation in relation to those countries, again, is uh, contrary, I think, to most people's views of, of how international law should work. In a case concerning the UPC and a non-EU EEA country, in my in, and in many in many people's views, you need to fall back on international law, um, not on the Brussels regulation. And so then is there a third group to look at again? So non-EU non-European countries, what might happen there? So um, let us take Korea or Japan or the US as, as kind of primary examples. Um, the starting point really should be there is absolutely no jurisdiction because the UPC and the agreement is framed so as to have rights or the, the power to make decisions in relation to two rights, European patents, and the new unitary patent that's just been introduced. European patents, as granted by the EPO, do not extend to Korea, Japan, the US, and so on. So that ought to be the beginning and end of it. Um, and the UPC will have to limit its decisions to unitary patents and European patents, whatever the extent of that, that European patent jurisdiction is likely to be. On the other hand, we just need to wait and see. The UPC judges and some practitioners have already been very vocal that the UPC has extraterritorial jurisdiction in relation to European patents based on, some people would say, rather flimsy foundations. Um, so given uh, some creative thinking um, and persuading the UPC that its role as a one-stop shop would be best served if a patentee could bring all of its dispute before a single jurisdiction there might one could imagine be an extreme perhaps only an extreme situation where the upc is maybe best placed to resolve all of the issues uh, across the globe where the court might countenance giving an order that would have extra eu or let's call it extra european effect a frand determination might be such a case if it ever decided it had the power to um, determine, you know, the, the scope of a foreign license. 
unlike unlike the Fran cases that I so love, it seems that we will uh, end up with many complicated jurisdiction challenges coming from cases like that. And and like you said, if they're based on the Brussels regulation, that will no doubt involve references to the CJEU and things like that. Absolutely. Um, if you're a defendant on the end of one of these long arm jurisdiction claims, I mean, your first port of call uh, in terms of uh, a, a strong defense to that claim is um, a reference to the Court of Justice. I mean, this is new EU legislation. The, these amendments that have been made to the Brussels regulation, they've not been considered before um, by the Court of Justice. Uh, they are clearly instruments of EU law. The UPC has the ability to make references to um, the Court of Justice. And indeed, the Court of Appeal could be said to have an obligation to refer uh, on certain points of EU law to the Court of Justice. So that, that, that certainly is a way to perhaps tie down the claimant um, if it attempts to exercise the long-arm jurisdiction um, with a, a preliminary objection to jurisdiction and, and a reference to the Court of Justice. Uh, there are uh, other op- options available, uh, perhaps some preemptive options. So, for example, if um, a particular non-UPC country is of concern, bringing a claim there first could uh, preempt um, the ability of the UPC to take jurisdiction over that country. So if you have a manufacturing site or an important market uh, outside of the UPC territories, it may be as a defendant you want to bring a revocation or DNI action uh, just to block um, the, the UPC uh, from granting um, relief in relation to that country. I guess a, a, another option is an anti-suit injunction uh, from the country of concern. So if that's the UK, for example, we have recent history of granting anti-suit injunctions to prevent parties from filing claims in foreign courts that would more properly be heard in the UK. Uh, that's not an option for an EU court outside the UPC, though, uh, as a result of the Brussels regulation. I suppose that there are more extreme steps uh, that, that, that parties could consider taking. So potentially moving production or, or distribution or MA holders outside the UPC, uh, particularly if we start to see that the initial case law is in favour of this long arm jurisdiction. Um, the pan-European long-arm PI jurisdiction will be based on the defendant being domiciled in the home country of the court in question. Um, And CJEU case law restricts the application of the pan-EU relief against companies not domiciled in the home court, even if they do carry out acts of infringement there. Um, So I guess that there are practical steps that that can be considered in relation to this long-arm jurisdiction, uh, but some of them are quite extreme. I suppose, Gregor, if there's a key message um, to take home in relation to this. I think it's just to be well prepared um, and, and to realise that the, the prospect exists that the UPC may grant. Maybe it's just preliminary relief, but I mean, that's obviously a powerful, extremely powerful in many cases, but equally final relief. But um, uh, so, so being well prepared, having your procedural and jurisdictional uh, um, arguments ready, if you, if you think this is a real case, but perhaps also thinking about a preemptive strike, um, really to take um, the long arm jurisdiction off the table. So I think that's probably all we've got time to fit in today. But if you want to read more about jurisdiction, we've got some really detailed and interesting articles on our, our website, one by Greg and some by some other colleagues, uh, which cover all of these issues and, and more, if that's possible. Um, so be sure to have a look there and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.